Hello and welcome to the Neil Plus One podcast with me, Neil Curran. We've reached the finale episode of season one. Aww. But I want to thank you all for your comments, feedback, and for listening into the podcast over the season. I'm already recording uh, the interviews for season two. I'm very excited about uh, the people we have lined up for that, but more on that at a, at a later date. This week, I get to speak to someone to whom to many needs no introduction, and he is Kevin Mullaney. Kevin is the former artistic director of UCB in New York, and he is the founder of the Improv Resource Center in Chicago. Kevin has a wealth of experience in improv, and it was fascinating speaking to him about his view on improv and how that's changed and evolved over over the decades. Um, So I hope you enjoy it. If you have been enjoying the podcast series, um, as always, I appreciate any comments or feedback you have. Uh, If you want to leave a review, you can do that on or leave a comment. You can do that on SoundCloud or you can do that on iTunes. So sit back and enjoy my chat with Kevin and I will see you in season two. Hello, it's Neil Plus One again and I'm delighted to be joined by... Actually, I'll allow you to introduce yourself. Um, I'm Kevin Mullaney and I'm uh, the host of the Improv Resource Center podcast and I teach classes in Chicago and uh, have taught for a bunch of different places. He's very modest. And today is the day after the morning after the night before. Well, the evening after the night before. So, Improv Fest Ireland 2016 wrapped up last night. Um, Kevin's Kevin's troops dicking to the script where our finale act uh, went down a storm. Um, and so, we've been having a quite relaxing day today, uh, absorbing everything that happened. So, how, how have you enjoyed your, your week in Dublin? Oh, this has been a great festival. Really good. I like I like festivals that are a little smaller, so you can you, you know you see the same people night to night and uh, actually get to know some people. And uh, yeah, this is a very good festival. Do you find with festivals? Because um, I've only been to a couple in the states, been to a few in Europe. And um, do you, how do you find that that the variety in festivals and what do you think? You know what stands out for you with a festival as being something that's fun to be part of. I like festivals where there's a lot of ways for people to participate. Um, I think there were festivals used to be in, in the States or they often were things where they were kind of exclusive. You know, uh, I know the first few years of the Chicago Improv Festival, um, it was, they were, they got great people to be a part of it, but, but it was, it was a, uh, a certain level of of improviser, and it was hard to it was hard to get into the festival. And it it up until a few years ago, um, it often was the you know same groups year to year were getting into the festival, but newer groups were were not. And when I that was one of the things I changed actually about the festival when I was the artistic director for Chicago was that we actively figured out different ways. To make it easier for new newer improv groups to get into the festival, um, we had a uh, like a whole category that was set aside just for new Chicago groups. Um, we had these sort of fringe uh, venues, which were first come first serve, and they weren't promoted in the same way as part of the curated festival, but it did allow for a lot more people to participate. You know, and I like that a lot. So. And uh, Chicago being the, the, I guess, the mecca of improv, to, to put a religious, a religious stance on it. Um, 
how have you found, I guess, you, how have you seen Improv Evolve over the years from when you first started out as a student to, you know, the global steam train that it is now? Yeah, it was pretty small when when I started doing it. Um, Improv Olympic was Improv Olympic and not I.O. And there was Second City, uh, of course. It had been going strong for quite a long time. And there was quite a bit of short form sprinkled around in different places, but there there weren't very many theaters dedicated to improv back in 1991, 92. Um, certainly not in Chicago. Even I.O. didn't have their own space. They performed at a, at a bar. And so it was very exciting to see that grow and do something much bigger. I think it's changed an awful lot. I mean, I think... It's partly, you know, your my own relationship to it. You know, when I first started going to see improv in Chicago, it was this very kind of secretive thing. Like, not many people knew about it. Um, and it felt kind of subversive, and it felt kind of, certainly kind of avant-garde and uh, strange and exciting mm-hmm. in a way that I think it, it's, and sometimes it feels like it, it's uh, lost that a little bit. I think uh, improv is sort of, even by the by the performers themselves, is taken for granted a little bit more. Like, oh, sure, we can do that. Whereas back in the day, when somebody would suggest something new, some new form, um, you know, there was this sense of like, oh, my gosh, I don't know if we can do that. I don't know if two people can sustain one scene for an hour. Yeah. Or, um, you know, I don't know if we can create something that looks like a movie on stage or or even just the Herald itself seemed very um, far more difficult than I think it actually was and far more mystical or something than, it, than, than maybe it actually is and now I think people take it for granted a little bit more mm. and stylistically then do you, you must have seen an, again an evolution what does that look like to you? Well, uh, it's interesting because <clears throat> I th- most of the forms that I see people experiment with in the U.S. are things that we kind of figured out in the early 90s, like on a broad. I mean, there's definitely small advances that people make all the time, but it's like the same five forms mm-hmm. that people are doing that were pioneered by 1995 there's the herald the deconstruction the movie the living room um what people call armando which i call a monologue deconstruction mm. um and then later Laronde and monocene mm. and almost everything seems to be some variation on one of those things yeah and so sometimes it sort of feels like innovation has kind of slowed down. But then you go to a, a festival, especially, I think the, the really interesting thing is the more it gets spread out and the more that people do it in different places, uh, you do start to get that, you know, different kinds of innovations that you that you hadn't thought of. Mm-hmm. And it's, they can be real small, like the, the group that had people, they gave people pillows and had them throw, I think it was the Belgian group. Belgian group, trickle and pop. They gave pillows out to the audience with different colors on them. And you, if you wanted, if you had the red pillow and you wanted whatever was happening to be heightened, you mm-hmm. threw the red pillow on stage. 
and I don't know what the other colors meant. Um, there was a song. Was there was one that was song, yeah. I think it was, they got the five pedals pretty much at the same time. As well. Right, right, right. And uh, so little things like that, you know, there's definitely little innovations that people come up with that get new ideas going. Yeah. Um, but I think the big one of the big differences is, you know, back when I started, it felt like if you could explain to somebody... Uh, what we did, it was like, we get a suggestion and we make up a half an hour of comedy and, and uh, kind of like a play on just one suggestion. And people would look at you and go, wow, that sounds really impressive. Mm -hmm. And now in Chicago, that, you know, that doesn't impress anyone. Impress anyone. <laughs> um, so you have to work a lot harder to figure out what makes your show special. Yeah. Um, and a lot of the things I've been doing in the last few years have been more about figuring out how to get just regular folks to come see a, a show rather than improv students. Because mm -hmm. uh, a good chunk of my life I spent at, at uh, Improv Olympic in the 90s and then UCB in New York. And it wasn't uncommon for 80% of the audience for some shows to be students or former students of improv. Um, and I think it's really, that can be really awesome, but it's even more rewarding when you can somehow attract a hundred people who aren't improvisers to come see a show. Yeah. And when someone taps into that, <laughs> they'll have to bottle it and sell it. <laughs> um, I, you know, I was struck by something, I think it was something Tara Francisco said to me, um, a couple of years ago. Um, I think it was Tara, so apologies if it's not, about when Dell was, you know, when Dell was coming to the end, you know, he was going on about, you know, the art form that we have has meaning, uh, you know, to keep working at finding what that meaning is. And I always wondered, on a personal level, I always wondered if Dell was, say, alive today, would he view improv as having evolved much from when, you know, has it headed in the direction he would have envisioned it going? Um, or is it, you know, what that evolution could mean is it stylistic is it growth of improv or is it just you know the meaning of what our art form can, what we can do with our art form on stage I think it's it, it's so for me it's a very personal thing and it's a very much a show by show kind of thing mm -hmm. there are certain shows where you know the satisfaction of the show has to do with more entertainment and you know did we create something that was entertaining that people enjoyed do they have a good time and that's worth something you know mm -hmm. they come to the theater have a couple of beers and and and, and enjoy themselves um, but I know back in the day when I was performing with uh, Frank Booth that was my Herald team at, at IO I was with for four years you know we definitely would had gotten to this place where the things we were creating on stage did seem kind of magical and you know, we were able to anticipate what each other might do in future scenes. We we could sort of read each other's minds and ways and sort of create things that were, um, you know, really surprising. Actually, you know, the, the teacher show the other night uh, at the festival, I, I, as soon as we were done with it, I was like, that's that was a pretty damn good herald. It, it, it wasn't supposed to be a herald. Nobody talked about it beforehand, and I don't know if other people would think of it as a, as a herald. But the way that things sort of came back, the way that group things got built, um, the way that it was kind of infused with 
meaning at the end, even though I couldn't tell you what that meaning exactly was. <laughs> but I, I, I really do like that when, when, um, uh, when you get done with an improvisation and somehow it represents the subconscious, the shared subconscious of the improvisers, mm. and it has there is some meaning to it. You know, yeah. the the problem with the only drawback of that is that it's kind of special circumstances, whether you can, whether you're given the opportunity to have an audience that is willing to come back week after week and, and go on that journey with you. You know, yeah. uh, there's an, <coughs> excuse me, there's an awful lot of people in Chicago these days doing lots and lots of shows for five people. Mm. Um, and so that's pretty it's pretty hard to have those kind of transcendent shows in front of five people. Um, it just, it feels very different than even when there's just 20 or 30 people in the audience. Yeah. 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 Yeah, And and I guess the venue is a, is a big part as well. If you're, you know, I don't know if that show, if we would have got away with that show if we were stuck in a corner in a bar. (laughs) Sure. Yeah. The, the, the reason why people went on that journey with us is because probably, 80% 80% of the people, 90% of the people in the audience were improvisers or improv fans. They, you know, it wasn't just a bunch of random people off the street. Yeah. Yeah. Um, who wanted to come see a comedy show, you know? Mm. And, you know, with that, one of the things, you know, as I've gone on my improv journey, I, you know, I'm a big movie fan. And, you know, I think it's the talking about movies that's sometimes more enjoyable than the watching, you know, sure. <laughs> deconstructing a movie in the pub with friends afterwards. And, you know, when you watch something that's funny, you don't necessarily have that payoff of being able to talk about it in detail. But when you do have a show where, you know, if you you, when you do go to a show where there is, you know, a lot more to it. So if you see a really good Harold, you know, there's stuff you can talk about afterwards. And, you know, I've noticed with a lot of shows I've seen over the past past year or so in particular, um, Audiences are saying, I was close to tears. I mean, Theatre Boo in the festival in Dublin, there was a girl in the audience who was moved to tears during a scene. Um, and I, I think that's that's so lovely. But it, it sometimes feels that the, there's a certain, I guess, percentage of uh, improvisers that may be afraid of going there. In that, how do you find that in, in, in from you know from your teaching and your students and maybe shows you're seeing in Chicago? How do you find that? that, that you know, does that come up? Do, do shows like that are they common or? I don't think they're terribly common in Chicago. Um, I mean, I think there's a lot of people who talk about playing more in a more dramatic vein. And really what they mean by that usually is just not going for jokes consciously. Mm. Um, You know, moment by moment in a scene, if you have a decision between doing something that you know or you hope would be funny versus doing something that is more true to the character in the situation. You always, you know, you want to choose that, that true to the character thing. Mm. That's what they talk about, but I don't, there, there isn't necessarily a lot of people who do that in practice. Yeah. yeah. Um, even people who teach that way. I mean, without naming any names, no, uh, <laughs> no. <laughs> I'm not a big namer of names, but I can think of a, a particular teacher who's, uh, been around for a very long time and pushes very hard uh, to get their students to be to get stuff out of them. And then when I performed with him at one point, he was the jokiest person on stage, and it was hard to do a, a, 
a, a, a grounded scene with him. And I found that very surprising and, and frustrating. Yeah. And conversely, something we were talking about earlier, um, I find some of the people who are trained, for instance, in Game of the Scene, if, if they've been trained in it and they're really good at it and they, they're a, a more mature improviser, say somebody, especially somebody like a, a Chris Gethard or, or um, Zach Woods or uh, somebody like that who, who's been around the UCB for many, many years uh, and has a, uh, a very high level of confidence and, and, and uh, uh, isn't uh, afraid of, of silence or isn't afraid of, of um, having extended moments in a show that aren't funny, that often those shows can be far more grounded. Um, so it's kind of like a, there's a weird, uh, it's hard to find people in improv in America, I think, that both preach, uh, really preach that you don't have to be funny and actually play that way as yeah. well. It, it's, it's almost like it's one or the other. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, the, 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 you know, in, at UCB, there's, there's a very conscious, <clears throat> Uh, they very consciously talk about comedy and, and are not apologetic about it. Um, whereas other places, it, they it, it almost seems taboo to talk about why a scene might have been funny. Um, and yet that doesn't necessarily translate into uh, shows that are that are more transcendent. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Of course, uh, also, I don't necessarily... Shows that I that I don't have a hand in. I don't necessarily go see a lot of shows these days that I don't have a hand in. I see a lot of improv. And I coach a lot of improv and teach a lot of improv and do a fair amount of improv. But actually going and watching it, um, it has a different. It just it strikes if it hits me differently as a, as a as a as a uh, audience member. I think something has to be. I have to either be very invested in the people who are doing it, or it has to be very good mm-hmm. um, for me to really to really keep my interest in a way that uh, you know scripted material doesn't often yeah. doesn't doesn't have to uh, have be as riveting mm-hmm. for, to keep my attention. If that makes any sense, yeah, no, it does. It's hard to watch improv after it's it's hard to watch mediocre improv after watching so much improv over the yeah. years whereas back in the day when I started Improv Olympic I was probably seeing you know five or six different heralds a week in different shows mm. uh, watching other people do them watching the other team when I performed um, I don't think I could do that that's also part of you know lifestyle or whatever you know yeah. at this point in my life uh, I, c- I couldn't do that either I couldn't uh, uh, afford to spend every night at a theater watching Heralds I guess you see you know you get to see all the different groups making the same uh, having the same bad habits as well I, I get that I, I yeah you know, I think we were talking about this earlier I, I had to watch a lot of improv online you know uh, and I still do you know that's a training tool for myself because I can't go uh, Improv in Dublin has evolved you know over the past five years so there's a lot more long form out there but you know you happen to watch so much online and then you do reach a point where even the tr- the teams that you watch that you enjoy they're very talented you even see 
oh, it's, it's going to be one of these type of shows. And I found that as well, that, you know, I'm not nowhere near the level of experience either, but there is a point where you just stop enjoying, you know, you don't want to watch everything. You go to a festival, you don't necessarily want to see every show. But on that, though, what then excites you? So if you visit a festival, so like coming to Dublin, I imagine there's quite a lot of the lineup that you didn't know. So I'm not talking specifically about Dublin, but what excites you? So when you travel or if you go to a festival, and if there's troops that you haven't heard of, what is it that you know excites you about the improv or wants to make you go see it? I think when I know that the performers have a different kind of background and training, sometimes that's exciting, especially if that background. I don't know, it could be clown, it could be dance, it could be physical theater, it could be mask, it could be um, acting, uh, or just, you know, sort of more conventional theater. Sometimes that can be very interesting and exciting, and I want to see it, because a lot, again, a lot of the improv in Chicago, even more so now than I think 20 years ago, the average improviser doesn't have any other background except for improv their first performance experience was a performance from a class. And um, so they don't have the same kind of uh, physicality that, say... Um, I mean, you definitely see it in, in, in international groups. For me, international groups, not from the United States. Uh, of course, you know, as improv grows, there's going to be a fair amount of people who have only done improv but you also see people who have you know very interesting backgrounds in terms of their performance and you can just see it on stage I mean it's, sometimes it's just I remember there was a w woman who auditioned uh, for me recently for an improv company and she she didn't have a ton of improv experience but she just seemed so poised and confident on stage and 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 I realized afterwards like oh she's a dancer mm. um, so she just carries herself differently on stage whereas a lot of improvisers kind of carry themselves like well one of my one of my uh, recent physical theater teachers would characterize it as uh, sort of a, a noodle body you know they just sort of they're on stage and their body's kind of half slumped over and yeah. and they kind of you know waver back and forth on stage or they, they don't they don't know how to be planted they don't know how to be physically present they don't know how to uh, uh, make sure that the whatever they're doing physically is a real choice so yeah. so uh, <clears throat> so that excites me when I can see performers who have that other other kinds of backgrounds I think yeah. um, because I just don't... I don't necessarily see that in some of the shows I, I more regularly see. Mm. I wanted to ask you about the, the IRC. Um, you know, I, the IRC is, is still going. Mm -hmm. And I know, certainly when I stumbled across it, I think every improviser at some stage, whether they, they have heard of yourself or not, has stumbled across the IRC. And actually, when I started doing Neo Plus One before, I, before it was Neo Plus One, um, I got chatting to people on IRC, on IRC about solo shows and Matt Holmes from Philadelphia and we started meshing back and forth so I sure. imagine there's a lot of people 
similar to myself have stories with the RC so how, have you have you, you must have tales is there something about it over the years has things happened on that side or is there golden improv moments that have happened because of that site well the site the site got started in the late 90s um, on a very sort of rudimentary forums in the beginning that were more like a chat room mm. um, where I think it kept up to 300 messages so whenever the whenever someone posts the 300 first message the first message disappeared um so there's uh, so for instance um, there's you can still find it on my site somewhere um, but the night that uh, or the day after Dell died a lot of people posted very heartfelt uh, remembrances of Dell and you know a few days later those messages started to disappear right off the site uh, luckily somebody copied them and then and then uh, uh, made it a sort of physical photocopy of it and handed it around and I, ha I got one of those copies and transcribed it to put it back on the site later um, then after I moved to New York it, we got a much better sort of message board system uh, and so there's still messages going back to I maybe 2000 but definitely like early early 2001 um, on the site and I don't know. I I think what it was is is uh, you know up until maybe two thousand seven two thousand eight, it served much of the functions of say Facebook. Facebook. Yeah. It was very much like the Facebook of its time. I mean, obviously there were tons of message boards that were like that for other communities. But if you were an improviser, especially in New York, um, but definitely in other places as well, um, you, you spent all day. On and you had some crappy job where you had internet access. Uh, people spent all day with that open in their browser rather than how they do Facebook now. And we had birthday threads for when people had uh, birthdays, and and we talked about pop culture and politics. And we and there was no way to filter and hide people, so we got into some real, especially after uh, nine eleven, got into some pretty heated um, political exchanges. Um, I think one of the weirdest things about that was there was a moment when the site kind of went viral and broke out of the improv community. Um, there was a, a, a woman, a friend of mine, who wrote a blog on there. I figured out how to to uh, change one of the sub-forums so that you could only respond to yourself. So you could essentially have a blog. This is, you know, it's like sort of like a Tumblr or something where you would, or more like a WordPress where within it. So you could, because I found that there were sometimes people just wanted to say something and they really didn't want to talk about it. <laughs> they just wanted to express themselves and not have to fight about it. So that was what this, this was for. And uh, a woman wrote something called True Porn Clerk Stories. And it was a series of stories of her working in a video store and the observations she had of, of the men who would come in and go into the basement to get uh, pornographic videos. And she had a background in, in anthropology, I think was her, her uh, college degree. So she sort of described these guys in the same way that a... Uh, uh, you know, you might describe an ancient culture or something. It was very funny. And eventually, um, somehow it got 
noticed by This American Life, you know, which is a, a, a very big radio program in America. And, and uh, so she was featured on This American Life reading excerpts from her blog. And they linked to it uh, in the show notes. And then I got picked up in other places and suddenly, you know, we went from having 30 people on the site at once during prime time to, you know, 500 people or a thousand people. And I kind of broke the site for a few days and, and it was back in the day when you really had, you had to pay for bandwidth for your website. So there was like a, it went from being $20 a month or something to like $500 that month or something. <laughs> uh, but it also attracted a ton of people who also started creating blogs. Mm. And many of these people had no connection to improv. So, and a lot of them were sexual in nature. So there was, you know, there was, there was a, a woman who, act, uh, who claimed to be an escort and started a, a blog about uh, prostitution. <laughs> uh, there was a swinger couple who started writing stories. Um, and we got a lot of random people involved in the board, and it kind of, it really changed the board. It, 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 I, wonder, I always wonder about that moment, because this was still, you know, three or four years before Facebook. And it was like, you know, somebody with some insight, with, with more insight than me, would have looked at this and going like, okay, we need to, you know, it's, I'm sure it was stuff like that was the inspiration for places like Reddit and, and other, you know, who, who were like, well, this message board stuff is interesting. But we need something that's more that anything can go on it, and yeah. not just these sort of small communities of people who are interested in one topic or another. Mm. So it's interesting. I, the, um, it's funny because it's true, so true what you mentioned. I mean, I, I learned with Facebook. I, you know, it started when I, I turned off notifications for Facebook. It was one of the healthiest things I've ever done in my life, and it's the social pressure that it puts people on under. But I, I, I still, I, I see it's bookmarked and I, I regularly check it and also read it. Um, although I, I find the IRC has a bit more uh, breadth to the, the, you know, the, my Reddit can be very sane in a lot of things that are posted, whereas the IRC has, um, and I guess because it's, it's been around such a long time, there's a lot of content that's of use going back years. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is something, you know, you, you, I totally get that, having it open the whole time when you're going about your day. Um, but you wouldn't you wouldn't do that with Facebook. Uh, well, it would be it'd be a waste of a day. Totally waste. <laughs> you'd riddle yourself with social anxiety. But like Facebook, the explosion in groups, improv groups on Facebook. I know, like when you're when I'm p- pimping out the improv festival, it's like you have to go through a list of maybe tw- twenty Facebook sure. group uh, pages to pimp it out. You know, there's. The international improvisers group. There's the group for for you know, worldwide group for improvisers, and then there's I love doing it. So <laughs> many of that. I guess none of them will ever be consolidated. But I guess that shows as well the popularity and growth in improv that people are so passionate about it. Yeah, I mean, it's a very. I think it's kind of a. It's. You know, you can talk about it in terms of an art form or as an entertainment. Um, but it's probably less interesting than talking about it as more a, a, a way for people to sort of transform their transform their lives. You know, mm. I think you know for a lot of people, I saw it very much in New York, uh, more so than Chicago. Chicago is, is the kind of town that I think if you move there when you're twenty one, twenty two, twenty three, out of, just out of college, 
it's not that difficult to find a, a, a group and find friends and so on. Mm-hmm. Um, but New York, it's uh, terrible. <laughs> New York is a very hard place to be if you are really young and you don't have much money. And, uh, you know, it's a very competitive place. Um, and even it, it, it just felt very different. And so when I, when I moved to New York, you know, my experience wasn't that because I started working at the UCB right away and there was already this great community of people, uh, that I was hanging out with. So, you know, immediately I had a social life as well as a sort of intellectual, you know, creative stimulation and, you know, it's like a whole, whole thing. But I would talk to people who had lived in New York for say five years before they discovered the UCB and before the UCB was a thing. And they would talk about how their life was completely transformed mm-hmm. because of it. Um, that they had gotten so much out of it on a personal, on a personal level of being a part of a community having a place to go to hang out. I mean, the day on, on November 11th, when I left work, I'm sorry, September 11th, um, on September 11th, when, after the attacks in New York, um, when I left, uh, work that day, that morning, I, I was working at, um, JP Morgan Chase, uh, in, uh, uh, and it was clear at a certain point they just sent everybody home. And, uh, and so I, I went to the theater and so did a lot of other people who were in the, um, in the city at that time, just instinctively. They said, where else do you, where else do, should I go? I mean, I can't go home. I don't want to go, I don't want to go hide in my apartment, you know? Um, we had, that was kind of a remarkable moment, uh, for anybody, I'm sure, in New York, but for our experience, because um, I think it, that was when Harold was on Thursday nights and the attacks were on Tuesday, and we went ahead with the show on that Thursday night, like two days later, and it was, I believe we did right away. We, we, did, we went up, we started again before a lot of people thought we should, <laughs> um, but I thought it was important because... You know, it was that's that was everybody's family, it, the people, especially who were involved at that time at the theater. It was much it was much smaller. It was only, um, you know, 150 performers in total, probably with all the different shows, mm-hmm. or less, and a few hundred students. And so, you know, people needed to be together. And, uh, so that that sense of community, and I think the IRC probably in those early days on the forum had that, you know, back before a lot of the sort of the random people showed up as they, uh, uh, as people would call them. Um, it had that kind of community where you, you felt like you were a part of something, even though you might be one of five people doing improv in Utah, you had, you were connected somehow to all these people in New York who were doing it as well. Yeah, it probably definitely makes the world smaller. That's, that's for sure. But it's interesting you said that about 9-11, um, uh, I was talking to some comedy sports people in, in San Jose. They're really, they're really great guys out there, 
and I've guessed it with them a couple of times and they do I'm presuming this is this is done by all comedy sports in the States um, but they do the thing the sport for those not familiar with comedy sports it's improv set against the backdrop of being a sports a sports event um, and the, the, the US flag is there and everyone stands and they re, uh, recite the national anthem and I always, that was always my most uncomfortable bit of the show <laughs> because the only, words I, the only words I know are if anything I can remember from seeing it in a movie um, but I asked that question about, you know, do you find that people joke during that moment? Do, you know, do people take the mic or, you know, how does that reflect on And, it, you know, when 9-11 happened, that came up about how, you know, comedy, they were debating whether the show should still go on the week of the Friday of the 9-11 happened, and it did. And there was improvisers there that kind of drew, drew people together. Um, and people needed that comedy escapism to take them in the head of what happened that week. But um, I remember uh, Jeff Kramer from Comedy Sports saying um, that the, the the saying of the that's not the national anthem, is it? The oh gosh, you should know. I don't know the names. When you the, the thing the kids do America in, the Beautiful. No, the thing the kids do in school in the morning. Pledge of Allegiance. Pledge of Allegiance yeah, I think it's that. Um, or maybe it's the national anthem. I'm drawing a blank now. But either way, that that the meaning of that that part of the show carried a, a lot more weight at that mm-hmm. time with those people with tears so you can you know definitely see how improv uh, as a community is such a backbone yeah for people is such a, a supportive network yeah. yeah well and obviously no one was in the mood to joke about anything that was remotely connected to what had happened that two days before we weren't we didn't have that kind of distance or ability you know I don't think I don't for many of us it was it might have been two weeks later when the onion the first onion got published after that back then that was a physical paper that we had in 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 New York it wasn't a it wasn't really a website I mean it might have been a website at that point but we weren't you know that's not how it was consumed and uh, you know it wasn't until probably that and people started to think about like, okay, maybe, maybe we can touch this in some way. But I mean, still to this day, I can't, I get angry when people put pictures of the towers on fire on, you know, somebody will post a, you know, some think piece about terrorism or something. And the picture that gets shared, you know, when you share the link on Facebook, the picture that comes through is this picture of the towers burning. And I'm like, I, why are you, don't show me that. I don't, I don't want to look at that. I don't want to come at it, um, as a surprise, you know, as you, as I'm just sort of browsing through my new Facebook feed. Yeah. Yeah. A question for you that's completely unrelated. Okay. (laughs) Um, improv is an art form. You know, mm-hmm. I think a lot of people, when a lot of people, improvisers can sometimes forget, or when they're starting out, you know, what we do is an art form. Um, I think a lot of the general public sometimes don't necessarily put comedy uh, in that same bucket as an art form. Um, and, you know, so to pick your brain on this, uh, you know, there's countries in the world where improv is not necessarily recognised in the same way that that uh, their theatre uh, world is, even though improv and theatre are very much one and the same uh, to a certain degree. Um, you know, take Ireland, for example, you know, uh, there's only been, uh, that I know of, there's only been one group 
and that's been accepted in one of the main theatre festivals. So, you know, with your experience and your background, what, what advice or what comments do you say to people who are maybe listening who are in a country where improv is not yet at that stage in getting it recognised as an art, you know, as the art form it deserves to be recognised as? Well, I guess there might be a few different reasons why you might want it to have that status. Um, certainly, if if the, if you feel like that would help get an audience for it, or that would help, you know, legitimize it enough that you could that some theater would rent it to you, or that you could, uh, I don't know, study it as part of a theater course at college or something. I suppose those things seem valuable, um, but I, I guess I have never really been worried about what other people think about it mm-hmm. too much. It's about what the people I'm doing it with think about it that seems important to me. And maybe it was partly because I had this luxury when I, when I was really starting out that we did get audiences uh, at Improv Olympic back then and I for probably two out of the four years that I did that that I was with that team at IO uh, we were performing on Saturday night so we got really good audiences Mm. Um, so I I was I wasn't too bothered by it Mm. Um, I don't know I don't think my experience is that uh, audiences they don't necessarily they don't. I don't know how much they care whether it, what they're seeing is is an art form or is it's entertainment or it's comedy. Mm. I suppose what what might be annoying is is and this does happen is when you uh, have a show and everyone who shows up is expecting stand up comedy, yeah. and then is kind of disappointed mm. by it, especially if what you're doing is kind of like an old school herald where you get a suggestion and you start doing this performance art piece essentially in front of them and they're like, what the hell am I watching? Uh, that can be maybe frustrating mm-hmm. and it's kind of nice to have an educator audience who knows what's, knows what it is that you're doing. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think there's much you can do to uh, make that happen. I think though, actually, you know, I think Mick has a lot of good things to say about this um Mick Napier from The Annoyance you know he he had a, a kind of a bad reaction when he first saw Harold like didn't understand it what they were doing and he was somebody who had, had been doing improv for a while saw Harold was confused by it didn't like it seemed uh, uh I don't know what the right word is I, I, maybe I shouldn't speak for him but but the point is is that he strong, feels very strongly that you should, you need to educate your audience as part of the show. You need to give them enough information so they understand what they're what you're, what we're doing. I mean, just as an example, the show we did the other night, um, we, you know, we didn't take ten minutes to explain what we were about to do, but um, we did feel it was important to explain to the audience what it was that we were doing, even if that wasn't a hundred percent clear, even after our explanation, mm-hmm. you know, the, there's a way to sort of present something so that the audience gets what you're trying to do. Even if you're doing a Herald and you 
need to explain to them a little bit. We're going to get this one suggestion and then we're going to riff on it together as a group and sort of uh, create a whole set of ideas that we're going to pull from in order to do scenes. Um, you know, giving the audience enough respect to explain it to them. The people who know already aren't going to be too bothered by an explanation. Mm. Um, you know, it's not always necessary. Sometimes shows are so simple that you don't need to explain things. But if, if, if you're running into problems with your audience because you're doing something artistic and they're expecting stand-up comedy, then the way to deal with it is to educate them on the spot and let them, let them in on what you're doing. Mm. And not just, and, and don't just sort of expect them to catch up. Yeah, yeah. You know? Or to sort of redesign your show in a way that it's very clear. I think one of the reasons why um, the Armando show has done so well over the years and how I asked Kat it did so phenomenally in New York is that it's understandable to a lay audience without much explanation. Somebody throws out a word. The person telling the stories reminds them of a story from their life. They tell the story. The scenes that happen are, at least in ASCAT, um, are very clearly uh, related to some aspect of the story. And so an audience kind of intuitively gets it. Even a first-time audience usually gets what they're doing, as opposed to some improv shows where some an audience member might look at it and be confused by it. Mm-hmm. So we're... <clears throat> Talk to Kevin, the teacher, for a moment. Um, is there something that you're maybe seeing, uh, you know, habits that improvisers have, or is there something you've been teaching recently that you'd like to share some uh, insight on or an exercise with, uh, or an exercise on, something uh, something that you enjoy teaching or something that you've been working on or noticing? Well, I think a lot of what I've been teaching can kind of be put in two different baskets. One is... Um, trying to encourage people to figure out how to be more impulsive in their choices, more um, to surprise themselves uh, when they're on stage and when they're in an improv scene. Um, I think a lot of improvisers, they get, they get their heads filled with a lot of rules and, and there's this sense that there's a right way to respond to, you know, if somebody asks you a question or if somebody accuses you of something or if somebody suggest that we should do something on stage, there's only one right way to respond to that. Mm-hmm. And they, if they just learn all the right ways to respond, then the scene will take care of itself. And um, I like trying to create ways to encourage students to make um, very impulsive decisions and then to figure out why they made that decision afterwards, because that's kind of what we do in real life. You know, we think we are these very logical, rational people, but uh, that's really not how humans work. We do things all the time and then make up story. Our brain makes up a story for us why we just did that. Um, Even though we think that we made a conscious decision to eat that piece of cake, we didn't. Uh, Our brain told us to eat the cake and we ate it and then came up with a story about how much we really love lemon cake Uh, and who knows if that's really true Um, so I like kind of making that happen in an improv scene as well of getting someone to make a really impulsive choice out of their sort of reptile brain and then figure out why they did it afterwards not like as every choice in a scene but more as a way to kind of figure out what this character might be about 
Um, and then the other sort of basket of is I like scenes that are rooted in behavior first. Um, so there's, you know, there's a, a conventional way to start a scene often is to, we set up the situation, we decide where we're at. And then in the first few lines, we kind of negotiate who we are in this situation, why we're here, what are we doing? And we, you know, so we sort of set up the, the, you know, the basics of the scene, the sort of basic understanding of it. And then uh, as we progress, we, we, you know, make sure to have strong point, uh, a strong point of view about what we're doing. We, we might notice each other's behavior and then, you know, figure out some unusual thing. If we're doing, if we're trying to use the game of the scene, we're looking for an unusual thing. So it's kind of this, we're building up the foundation and then slowly sort of adding things on top until we have a, a complete scene. And that's still a good way to, to do a scene. But I like to do scenes where you are completely focused on the behavior at the beginning of the scene. So we're just trying to figure out how we relate without any knowledge of what's actually happening. So we might start a scene and you're being, there's something about your physicality that seems that like you're being intimidating to me. And I realize that something about my body position makes me look small and, and scared. And so, so then we, we figure out that dynamic first, um, and then figure out what the circumstances are later. And in fact, don't even worry about the circumstances for, for maybe the first 30 seconds of the scene. We just worry about you're being really intimidated and it's scaring me and, and try to figure out what that feels like and how, what that dynamic is. And what I like about that is you can do, you can use that to kind of lead to a kind of conventional situation. So you're being really intimidating. I'm kind of scared. And we realize after, after a few lines that you're a police officer and I'm a teenage kid who's been accused of, of doing something, you know, accused of stealing a car. And that's a perfectly reasonable explanation about why you're intimidating and why I'm scared. Um, but we could just play this behavior for a while and instead give it a totally different circumstance where you um, are my daughter's boyfriend and you've come over to pick her up and, uh, and I'm scared of you. Like you're an intimidating person and I don't want my daughter to date you, but I'm so scared of you that I'll, 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 I'm not going to put my foot down. And so then we have this behavior that you would never expect. It feels uh, strange and, and interesting for the situation. And it's because we know what the behavior is first and we choose a situation that um, is unexpected for it. So it's kind of like building, uh, building a game, but in reverse order. Mm. And the thing I really like about that is that behavior is always interesting. Um, you know, the process of kind of negotiating what we're doing in a scene, sometimes that, that, that isn't necessarily the most riveting thing to watch. Uh, sometimes it can be really fascinating to watch people build a scene together. Um, but uh, sometimes a scene, just the circumstances of the scene aren't really that interesting. Mm. 
Um, but, but yeah, but behavior to me always is, you know, if there's something really, something fairly honest going on and both characters are being affected by the other person and, uh, it's important, the other person, their behavior is important. It's, it's really can be quite interesting, even if you have no idea what's happening. Yeah. Cool. One last question, Kevin. Uh, and I, I usually say this, that this, this is not a popularity question. Um, is, there, um, is there a show you've seen recently back home or any, anywhere uh, where you forgot you were an improviser or just something that you enjoyed? Um, I guess something that you, you know, what's your, what's your Game of Thrones or what's your Breaking Bad? What, what show have you seen recently that uh, you've really does, does it have to be improv? And we'll stick with improv. Okay, so, so something that really struck me. What was the last thing that I watched as an impro- as an audience member? Last improv. It really excited me. Mm-hmm. That. Everyone who's been has seen you in their audience right now is going, what? <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's a tough question. It's a tough question because yeah. so much of what... So much of the improv I've watched, it's been more as like a director of a yeah. show. So I'm not going to say like, well, the show that I directed, yeah, yeah. it was amazing. Um, I I did see some things at the Del Plus Marathon this year. Uh, a couple of shows, a couple of of, of uh, things that I find really interesting. You, there's almost always some show that I'll, I'll watch at, at, uh, the Del Close Marathon when I go. And it tends to be these, these more mature, uh, improvisers. People have been around since, you know, 15 years. And, um, and there's, they'll do a, a show and it'll be so grounded and so riveting from start to finish. And it's, it's not necessarily funny all the way through. There's almost always some really, really funny moments, but very patient and very uh, exciting. Um, there definitely has been some shows that I've seen uh, that I haven't necessarily directed, but were at a theater that I that I used to uh, that I used to perform at a lot. Um, things like uh, improvised mythology is a show that some friends. Excuse me. Um, Improvised Mythology is a show that some friends did in Chicago and, and take around to different festivals. And I think it's just a really fun idea for a show. It's sort of roughly the idea of of a uh, kind of improvised uh, Greek play. Um, and... Yeah, those are, there's... I'm going to stick with that. Cool. <laughs> it, did, it did sound like you had a non-improv show in mind there for a moment. Well, I think the things that gets me excited artistically are other things. I mean, we're living in an amazing time for television. I mean, back when I watched, when I was a kid, there was nothing like... I gave up on television as a teenager, and it wasn't until my 30s that I started watching television again, because for this huge amount of time, there was nothing worth watching hardly on TV. Um and as a young actor, the thought of, I think when I was maybe 22, 23, <clears throat> the thought of ever being on a television show seemed like, oh, that's worse than, yeah. than just a regular old corporate job. And now 
you know, I think there's so many interesting, cool things happening. And it's a very um, desirable... There, there are lots of jobs in television, I think, that would be really creatively fulfilling and interesting. I love uh, hearing the sort of background stories that go into writers' rooms. Um, you know, the uh, Vince Gilligan, who did uh, Better Call Saul and uh, Breaking Bad, you know, they have a podcast where after every episode and it, uh, they've recorded it months before back, you know, when they're, when they're like editing these episodes, but they release it, um, right after the show airs and they'll talk about the sort of background stories of how the episode got written or what was special about the direction and, and so on. And I, and I, uh, you know, some of the work on shows like that or, you know, Game of Thrones or, uh, you know, there's plenty of things on Netflix and AMC, Mad Men, uh, occasionally Walking Dead, uh, that are so well written and so interesting um, that I would I think that that's those are a lot of things that kind of inspire me now are, are coming from from that. Mm-hmm. Can we, can we 